All right, book of 2 Peter is where we're going to be. 2 Peter, rolling in this book now. So good singing that song. That song, uh, if you've been with us through 1 Peter, you, sh- you should recognize a lot of themes that come out of 1 Peter that are uh, put right there in that song. I love being able to sing that, and we're going to see some more of that in 2 Peter uh, as we go through that. So uh, this morning, as we get started, I want to I start by asking you a question. My assumption is, if you are here uh, this morning, if you're joining us online, that in some measure, you are connected to the Christian faith. You are either a Christian, you are an active follower of Christ, or you are, uh, you, you are here with someone, or uh, someone has asked you to kind of tune in and watch and listen. My assumption is that for, for in some way, you are tied. You didn't just walk in here and just be like, hey, what is this place? I thought it was, I thought it was like a fast food place. I didn't know what it was. You're here because you are somehow tied to the Christian faith. Specifically, if you are here and you are a Christian, the question that I want to ask you this morning is a simple one. Uh, it's a simple one, but there's a lot of different answers to it, and we're going we're gonna to dive into one kind of way to answer that question. The question is, why are you a Christian? Or perhaps the better, the better way to say it is, uh, at least to get to where I want to go this morning, is on the basis of what? What are you basing your belief on? How did you get to this place? Sociologists would tell you that it's uh, because you grew up that way, at least because you live in a culture that, that promotes your religion. Uh, in short, you are a Christian because the people around you are Christians. Uh, psychologists or, or uh, philosoph- philosophers would tell you that, that you are religious because you are somehow forming your identity and your own personal belief structure, uh, a, a kind of a way to organize your world and the world around you. And religion does that nicely, kind of serves us well in that way. Skeptics and critics would say it's because you are weak and because you need a crutch in order to make it through this world. You are not strong enough to do uh, life without some sort of a crutch like religion. Now it's easy to bristle at those things and say, "Well, whoa, whoa, no, 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 that's not the case. That's not why I'm a Christian." But we shouldn't we shouldn't just kind of knock all those things because, in in all honesty, those things uh, will there, there's some measure of truth to to all of them. All of those things kind of play a role in our formation and our uh, faith. Uh, but it it underscores the importance of that question: Why are you? Uh, a Christian. Why do we follow Jesus? What is it that gives us the confidence to call ourselves by the name of Jesus? How do we get to that place where we can say, I follow that guy and I follow that guy specifically because of what? What is it? Now, like I said, there's a lot of ways we can answer that. We can answer that on the basis of experience. We can answer that on the basis of uh, uh, perhaps a changed life. But somewhere along the line, we've got to be able to come up with an answer that is convincing enough to tell people, no, 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 you can be confident in this belief. You can be confident in calling yourself a Christian. This is the question that I think Peter is trying to answer in our text this morning, our little paragraph that we're going to look at this morning. I was tempted to make this like a chapter and a half, but instead I'm going to break it up into two sermons. I just want to really answer one small thing. My goal this morning is the same as Peter's, to show you the fact that you are, he- the fact that you are here is not simply a matter of uh, kind of sociological factors. You didn't just get here because of some of the stuff that people 
that, that because people around you are Christians. You got here with even uh, with more of a reason. So what I want to do is I want to kind of give you a solid foundation so that you can have complete confidence even when others mock and dismiss us. And I'm going to tell you something up front today, too, that, that most uh, pastors I don't think uh, will tell you. This is probably not going to be a super dramatic mountaintop sermon for you. I'm not looking for some big emotional experience this morning. I'm not trying to take you to the, to the mountain to make you feel like supercharged up when you walk out of this place. That is not really the goal this morning. The goal this morning is not to be uh, dramatic, but instead it is to help you in certain times, in certain places. What I'm trying to do is I am trying to put weight in your ballast. Do you know what a, a ballast is in a boat? You guys know what that is? So a, a ballast is, is, a, is a tank of usually water, but it can be anything. That's usually in the very bottom of a boat. It's also sometimes, like in the, in the older boats, you see that the, the big sails, it's the, the weights hanging off the side. The, the idea of a ballast is it is to make the ship sink further in the water, to get a little bit deeper in the water. Because if you have a boat that rides on the top of the water, especially if it's a boat with a rounded bottom, what happens is it starts to sway on the top of the water, right? If the water gets choppy, it starts to sway a lot. And so if you don't have a way to make the ship sink into the water a little bit, then you're going to end up with a seasick passengers. You're going to end up with a boat that topples easy whenever the waves come. What I want to do in this sermon this morning is not take you to some big mountaintop experience. What I want to do is I want to weigh you down just a little bit and let you sink a little bit deeper in the water so that when those waves come, you don't rock nearly as much. You have more stability when that comes. So that you aren't seasick whenever the, the, the world kind of rocks you back and forth. But instead, you're able to kind of keep going and keep sailing towards your destination. That is the goal of the message. To keep the boat upright, to keep the passengers steady, and to get you to your destination. That's the plan. So chapter 1, we talked about this last week. Peter is explaining his purpose for writing this letter. What he says is that he knows he's about to die. He knows he's in prison. He knows he's probably going to be a martyr. He knows that he's about to die. And he says, as his time on this earth comes to a close, there's a handful of things that he wants them to know. Specifically, verse 12, it says there's some things that he wants to remind them of. Things they already know. Things they've already been taught. He says he wants to drive that home to them. And he wants to remind them what it looks like to be a Christian. That's what we looked at last week. In verse 15, he says he's going to make sure to do all that he can that, so that after he's gone, when Peter's gone, when the chief apostle is gone and he's no longer there, you can still have confidence when you look back and remember what it is that he has taught. These things are critical. And these things that Peter are lay, that is laying out there are essential to our faith. And they can't just be some old man telling stories. They have to take root and they have to be uh, more a part of who we are and a part of the faith than just some old man that told stories about hanging out with Jesus. And they have a weight and they will long outlive Peter and they cannot be forgotten. And so what he's saying is, I want to remind you of these things that you cannot forget when I'm gone. 
That's where we pick up today in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. I'm going to read the entire text for this morning, and then I'll come back and kind of go through it uh, a couple of verses at a time. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to you, which, which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is our text for this morning. What Peter wants to do before he dies is give confidence to all these new Christians in Asia. Now remember who he's writing to. It's easy to kind of forget who it is that he's writing to and the situation that they're in and just immediately apply it to our context. But remember who he's writing to. These churches are at most 20, maybe 30, but probably in the neighborhood of like 10 to 15 years old. They're about as old as we are as a church. That's these churches that Peter is writing to. They are new churches. Now, we were planted and launched by a church in Knoxville that has a longer history that, uh, that we can tie back to other things, but not these churches. These churches weren't tied to, to anything. These were all brand new. The Christian faith was brand new. They had just, just begun to be even called Christians at that point. There is no church tradition to draw on. There's no body of teaching to draw on. There is no Bible to pick up. My guess is they probably had one or two of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they probably had one or two of those, especially probably Mark, but they probably didn't have them all, and even that, they may have had one copy of, of, of Mark or one of the Gospels for the entire church that they would study together in these stories about Jesus. You can imagine there had to be times when they kind of looked around at one another and asked the question, what are we doing here? What in the world are we doing here? The very fact that we are gathering together means that we could die for this. That's what Peter writes about in 1 Peter. We could be persecuted for this. They had to look around and say, what are we doing here? We're not, we're not, we're, 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 we, we, we don't have these, this Bible, we don't have a church tradition to look back on and to say, hey, this is who we are, and uh, we, can, we, can, we can cite the, you know, who knows, the, any part of church history you want to throw out there. We can cite the, 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 the Reformation, we can cite the early church history and, and all these different things. We don't have any body of teaching like that to draw from. What we've got is what has happened in the last 15 years and these stories about who Jesus was. Now, we've got the people who are with Jesus that we're learning from, but they're not here every Sunday. We have such a small little bit that we know about Jesus. What are we doing here? Listen, I've asked that question in the last 11 years 10,000 times about what we're doing here. I've said, what in the world are we doing here? Probably hundreds of times to the elders, probably 
I don't know, a couple thousand times to Chris whenever we've been in the office saying, what are we doing here, man? What in the world are we trying to do? Probably another seven or 8,000 times to Emily whenever we're trying to work through some stuff saying, what are we doing here? Is it all worth it? Is what we're doing here, does it really matter? What are we doing here? And every single time I had something that these believers didn't have, I could pick up this Bible and I could go and I could read the words of Jesus. I could read the words of Peter and Paul. I could read the words of, of these people who walked with Jesus. And I could go back and I could, do, uh, I could pick up my Bible and I could, uh, I, could, I could read this. I could get on the internet and I could read stories of other saints and other pastors that have walked the same road, that have done the same thing and be encouraged by that. I can pick up autobiographies of missionaries off of my shelf <clears throat> that knew a, a loneliness and a pain that I cannot fathom, and yet they held fast to their faith. I had all of those resources at my disposal. I can't tell you the number of times that I picked up my Bible and read from John chapter 6. Jesus, after some, some of his uh, followers walked away because of his teaching that was particularly hard, it says in John chapter 6, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, turn to the twelve, <clears throat> Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I could go to that. And I could hear Peter's words. And I could be encouraged by Peter's words. And I could repeat the same ones. Whenever I ask the question, what are we doing here? Is it all worth it? I could go back and I can say, where else would I go? Jesus has the words of life. I'm telling you, I went through a season when I probably read those verses every morning. Where else could I go? Peter wants these new Christians in these baby churches to have the same kind of resolve that he did when he walked with Jesus. That's part of what he is writing about here in 2 Peter. Certain of what he was hearing and was being taught. Certain as the day he saw Jesus raised from the dead. He wants them to be certain as the day he saw Jesus ascending into heaven. He wants them to be as certain as the day he stood on the mountain and saw Jesus transfigured. When God gave Peter and John a, a glimpse at the true majesty of who Jesus was. So this same Peter who says, where else would we go, is now communicating to these churches and he's saying, let me just tell you. Let me just tell you what I've seen. You can have confidence in this because I have seen this and I know this to be true. I want you to be able to say, there's nowhere else I can go. I'm committed to this because Jesus has the words of life. What Peter's doing in this paragraph is he's actually kind of laying out a legal defense, a legal case for why these churches should listen to him and should believe him and trust him. If you'd like, you can turn all the way to the book of Deuteronomy, or it'll come up on the, the screen here. But uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, you have the legal requirements to bring a case to be heard before a judge. This is Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or, uh, or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So what comes out in Deuteronomy chapter 19 is that in order to bring a case 
So Peter's going back to his Jewish roots here, and he's saying, he's saying, I'm going to take this legal advice that says we need at least two or three witnesses in order to corroborate our stories. What I'm going to do is I'm going to come, and I'm going to bring two independent witnesses to this case. I'm going to give you two reasons why you should listen to me. This is what Deuteronomy chapter uh, 19 is all about. Two independent witnesses that corroborate the same story. They they, they can't just be two people with different stories that kind of somewhat line up. It has to be two people from different perspectives that tell the same story. Peter wants these new believers in these baby churches to know this is exactly what they have been given. Two witnesses. Peter chooses to cite a very particular moment that's what he is witness to. Now, there's all kinds of things he could, have, he could have talked about, but there's one particular moment. So what I want to do is I want to go to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and I want to read that event and then quickly go back to what Peter has to say. So I want to, I want to show you what Peter is talking about, and then I want to go to where Peter talks about it, all right? I think it's important that we see all of this. So Mark chapter 9, verse 2. This is the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So this is the account of the transfiguration. This is all that is in there uh, in the the book of Mark. Uh, And Peter cites it here for a couple of different reasons, I think. For the sake of time, I'm not going to chase all the different scriptural references that are attached to these six verses. They're all over the book of Psalms. If you're looking for a great Bible study to do this week, that's a good one. Find out all the scriptural references that are alluded to in the transfiguration. That's a good one. It could take all of our time this morning. But I want to highlight two factors of why Peter brings this up. One, this is the only time in scripture that the disciples ever get to fully see who Jesus is. We talk about this at Christmas all the time. This is what is known as the humiliation of Christ. He comes and takes on, his, takes on humanity, takes on our flesh. And in doing so, we are, it is, his glory is veiled to us. Even after his resurrection, they don't fully understand and see Jesus in his glory. Even as he ascends into heaven, they still don't see him in his full glory. The only time that we see a glimpse of fully who Jesus is in his glory is right here at the transfiguration. And he gives Peter, James, and John a glimpse. They are truly eyewitnesses to his glory. So let's go back now to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, and realize what it is that Peter is talking about here. Witness number one. So we got, we got to have at least two witnesses in order to bring a case and defend our case, right? Witness number one, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made it known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Where were they eyewitnesses to his majesty at? At the transfiguration. For when, we rece- for when he received 
honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born by him, born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We heard the voice. We were with him on the mountain. Peter says, I was there for this. I saw it all go down. You can have confidence in what we are doing here. You can have confidence in what I am teaching you. You can have confidence in what is going on. You can have confidence in all of this because I saw it. And I can verify that it's all true. All of it. It's not a legend. It's not a myth. It's not a rumor. It's not scared disciples making up a story. It's the truth. I saw it. This is Peter's kind of Han Solo moment. You know, whenever Han Solo comes back, he says, it's true, all of it. This is kind of what this is right here. This is him saying, it's true. So Peter establishes the first witness in this legal trial. He and John and James saw the transfiguration. They saw Jesus' glory. Elsewhere, Paul says something similar. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You guys probably have heard this verse. He says, For I delivered, this is Paul, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul is essentially saying the same thing. Though Paul is testifying to the resurrection, Peter is testifying to the transfiguration. They are saying, we are witnesses. And all these other brothers are witnesses too. Over 500 of us. Names you know and names you don't. We all saw Jesus risen. So Paul's reference is to the resurrection, but Peter has a more particular reference in mind. He has a purpose for this one that he brings up. He could have brought up any of those. He could have done just like Paul and talked about the resurrection again. But he's particularly talking about the transfiguration. And there's a lot of reasons, again, that we could talk through why Peter does this, but generally, most would take the reference to Moses and Elijah as symbolic. Not saying that they weren't actually there, but they were there with a symbolic purpose. Moses being symbolic of the law, Elijah being symbolic or representative of the prophets. And Peter is going to tie that symbolism into the rest of what he's going to say, along with all these other scriptural references that I'm not mentioning, into a second point. So, uh, the first one, this is 16 through 18, that's witness one. Now we're going to 19 through 21, that's witness two. So witness two, we have right here, and he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So remember, he's talking about the transfiguration where... Uh, where Elijah is referenced, the prophets are referenced, and he says, and we have the prophetic word more, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, 
knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So these prophets that he's referencing, they didn't just make this up. They didn't just design this themselves. They weren't trying to create some religion. But instead, it says that, they, uh, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So he says, we would do well to go back to the words of the prophets that told us about Jesus. Peter says that, that now he has seen the transfiguration. He has seen Jesus in his glory. He has seen how Jesus came to fulfill the law, Moses. He has, came, or he has seen how Jesus has came uh, and, and fulfilled the prophecies, Elijah. All that has now been confirmed. And as you keep on going, it just gets confirmed further and further. These prophecies that at one point everyone wondered about. And they said, when would the Messiah come? What would the Messiah do? When would the Messiah be here? And they were all looking for the Messiah. Peter looks and he says, look in the Old Testament. Look at these prophecies. And we can say, now those have been confirmed. We see it now. Now that he has risen and he has come back, we can see the prophecies that were out there. This is the time where I could spend the next hour talking about all the prophecies in Scripture. Hours talking about all the prophecies in Scripture pointing us to Jesus. We could spend the next hour just talking about the prophecies in Scripture pointing us to the transfiguration. And that's why Peter brings this up. They've been fully confirmed in the person and work of Jesus. He is the greater Moses. He is the fulfillment of the word of the prophets like Elijah. And Peter describes how these prophets wrote down these prophecies. And he says, you can see now how these have been fulfilled. And you can have assurance that these weren't just men making up stories. These, these weren't just skilled authors making, me, making this up. This isn't a good Harry Potter book. This is not the Lord of the Rings. This is not some prophecy that's been put out there, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is entertaining. No, these are words that have been confirmed over thousands of years, written as the Holy Spirit carried these prophets along. And these words have been confirmed in Jesus. And Peter says we would do well to pay attention to these words that it would be like a lamp in the darkness. And I can't tell you how often that imagery comes to my mind. A lamp in the darkness. Not a flashlight to see well out in the future. Not turning on all the lights in the room where you can see everything that is going on. But a lamp in the darkness that pushes away the, light, or the darkness around you. It gives you just enough light to take the next step and the next and the next and the next. A lamp in the darkness. He's reminding us of the hope that we have in Jesus. Remember, that's what he's doing here. He's reminding us. He's telling us about the truth we already know. So this is what Peter's done. Do you see the case he's built now? Two witnesses. One witness, Peter himself as an eyewitness, and those that were with him that were eyewitnesses to Jesus, specifically eyewitnesses to his transfiguration. 
They were there. That's witness one. Corroborated by all the prophecies and all that is laid out in the scriptures. So you got one event over here that Peter saw, and then you got all these prophecies that then corroborate with this event that they saw. Two different witnesses, two different perspectives, drawing on the same story and telling the same story. Peter says, I want you to have confidence in what you believe. I want to put, I want to put weight in your ballast so that whenever, whenever things get rough, whenever things get dark, whenever the, 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 the water gets choppy, whenever the waves are breaking over the bow of the boat, you aren't rocking back and forth and getting so seasick you can't figure out which way is up or which way is down, but instead you're steady in the midst of the waves. You aren't toppled over as the, the waves broadside you. You are instead sailing on to your destination. Why? Because you're steady. Because you have confidence. Because you have a foundation. Because as things get difficult, because as doubts come, because as those moments show up and you say, what am I doing here? You can go back to words like the ones that Peter says where he says, I just want to remind you of what you already know. You can have confidence in what you believe. You can be certain of what you believe. I say this all the time. If you've been at Providence for any length of time, you've heard me say this. We do not have a blind faith. People outside of Christianity assume that we have a blind faith about what is to come, that we are just kind of aimlessly hoping that we have no idea what's going to come, and we're just hoping beyond hope. We do not have a blind faith where we are stepping out with no confidence that we will be caught and that we will be held in by Christ. We have a faith that is rooted in Scriptures, Old and New Testament. We have a faith that is rooted in Jesus Christ, in His teachings, but especially in His death and His resurrection. As Paul tells us that, if, that if, if, if God sent his own son and raised his own son from the dead, how much more confidence can we have in him knowing that he did not leave his son to death? We have a confidence that is rooted in something. We need to hear Peter's argument. He saw it. He knows it to be true. He's gone back and he's researched the scriptures. And he knows how Jesus was the fulfillment of those scriptures. Skeptics and critics will tell you that the disciples never saw Jesus risen from the dead. They'll tell you that they were making up a story to kind of cover their rear ends. That they were just kind of making it up as they go along so that they could kind of continue this rebellion and this little power that they had within their, uh, within their circles. But this is not the argument of a man who's telling a lie. This is the argument of a man who says, come test my case. I bring forth my legal case and it's airtight. Because I can tell you all these things that pointed to what I saw. Go talk to, go talk to Paul. Go talk to those 500 that saw him risen. Go talk to John and to James that saw what I saw. Jesus is God. Jesus is alive. These words don't sound like a man that's covering for something. They sound like a man who's been changed by something. And he's trying to tell these baby churches, here's why you can have hope. And he's trying to tell you, here's why you can have hope. Because you can have confidence 
in these scriptures. You have the apostles in their testimony. You have the, the, the word that has been confirmed by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He's the one that the apostles testify to. He's the one that the scriptures testify to. This is Jesus. And this is the truth that is worth holding on to this morning. This is the truth that we come to proclaim every Sunday. So for you this morning, the question I have is whenever life is hard, and it is hard most of the time, but when it's really hard and it's really dark, will you reach for that lamp? Whenever the waves start to come at you, will you get rocked back and forth because you aren't, you aren't sure of your foundation? You aren't steady. You've not had your ballast weighted down to where you are confident and moving forward. My prayer for you is that Peter's truth will do just that. That it will give you confidence in your faith. That it will sustain you when the world leaves you battered. That when you start to feel woozy and seasick, a little bit punch drunk by life, that this truth will settle you sustain you, give you hope, and keep you sailing to your destination. To the day when you see Jesus exalted, just like Peter did. When you see Jesus lifted high and your faith shall be made sight. That's my prayer for you. And I think that's Peter's prayer for you. Right here. That you would have an unshakable confidence because of what we have in, in, in these scriptures, the testimony of the apostles, and because of what we have in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we are deeply grateful that you have not left us to figure out this life alone, but you have given us your word. You have given us the testimony of men like Peter, men that walked with Jesus, men that saw Jesus high and lifted up. Father, I pray that you would give us a confidence now in these days. Perhaps there's someone in here this morning or someone that's watching that needs that confidence now, whose, who, whose, whose life circumstances have pushed them to a place where they're asking hard questions and they're having some very serious doubts. Peter's been there. He knows. Father, I pray for those people that this morning and that this word from Peter would be a, 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 a calming, affirming moment. That they too can say like Peter, where else would we go? Because Jesus has the words of life. Father, I pray for those that maybe don't need that right now, right in this moment, whose faith is, is not shaky and wobbling, who is not dealing with, uh, with, with all these other things, but instead is just kind of coasting through life. Father, I pray that for whenever that storm comes that's on the horizon, you would keep them steady. Steady because they have Jesus. Steady because they have your written word to them. Steady because they have the Spirit, the Comforter, who is there to apply that word. 
Father, thank you for not leaving us alone. Father, as that lamp illuminates the darkness around us, give us eyes to see and a heart that trusts you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You would worship with us this morning.